welcome to One More Time, a Windband podcast. I'm Jake Burrows, and today we're going to be talking about musician mental health. We'll be talking to a composer, a collegiate band director, an arts education specialist, and professor of piano and piano pedagogy. They will address why mental health is an important and current topic for everyone, especially musicians, and discuss how to destigmatize it. Today's story is produced by Jake Burroughs. Today, among other stories, Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archives and Center for American Music, will share with us about Sousa's health and well-being throughout his life. Yeah, so uh, this month's episode is about musician mental health, and it discusses certain stressors musicians interacted with on a daily basis that affects their mental health, and then strategies and resources musicians can utilize as coping mechanisms. So from what I understand, there isn't a lot of records and documentation about Sousa's health and well-being, especially his mental health, because mental health didn't become an important topic until the turn of the 21st century. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Well, it's interesting, Jake, you say that because you know your mental health and your physical health are so intricately linked to one another. It just it, it, it just is. And to really understand Sousa and some of the health issues that he battled um, throughout his life, um, you really have to start at the very beginning as a young child when he was a about age five, he had developed a, a love for donuts. And apparently his mother said enough, no more donuts. And he got very angry at his mother. Story goes, it, it was nothing more than a five-year-old boy deciding, I'm not going to sleep in my bed. I'm going to sleep outside when it's pouring rain. And a short time later, John Philip catches pneumonia. In the 19th century, pneumonia uh, was one of the, you know, pneumonia and tuberculosis were the major killers uh, of people. In fact, during the Civil War, one in six people died from pneumonia because there was no penicillin. You treated pneumonia with various concoctions, which were never very helpful. Um, essentially, 19th century treatments for pneumonia basically included feeding you mercury as a laxative and to um, give you antimony to induce vomiting. Well, neither of those are particularly helpful, as doctors would tell you today. And of course, most of those types of treatments typically raised blisters on your body. So essentially, that's what he grew up with. Now, he, he at this stage, is still a not, not a musician. He is, his career hasn't started. But the pneumonia has essentially impacted him physically. And he'll carry that burden for the rest of his life. As a performing musician, we, we know Mr. Souza and his band toured heavily across the country beginning in 1892 and he continued to tour regularly until 1930 tour when he died by um, 1898 um, um, Sousa's traveling the united states and he ends up in sheboygan 
and catches what we refer to as a severe cold. Now, this isn't just sniffles. This is a severe cold. He's having respiratory distress. He's a 44-year-old man, and he's become so sick that he cannot lead his band. And from essentially November um, 21st in his performance in Milwaukee on November um, 22nd, um, he is incapable of standing up to conduct a band. And so Arthur Pryor is essentially the, the musician who leads the band um, while Sousa's away. And everyone will recognize people went to Sousa band concerts not only to see and hear the band, they went to see Mr. Sousa. That is probably the first instance of his civilian band where he actually has to step away from the stage. Now, one of the reviews of those 1903 performances references an instance where Sousa had to cancel a set of performances in Atlantic City in 1902. The reviewer states very clearly that Mr. Souza became distressed and ill from severe nervousness brought on by heavy travel. And this would probably be the only instance that we have a record of Mr. Souza actually having an emotional problem, if we can call it that. And, you know, from June 28th, the early part of August, you know, he's just not up to it. And so he canceled. And you look at the newspaper clippings, and they, all of the reviews stop right at the point the band is about to begin in Atlantic City. Now, 1907 is the next instance, um, and that's kind of a funny one. Um, you know, by 1907, Mr. is 53 years old, and, um, you know, the life of the traveling musician is, is really wearing on him. And it's really funny because I ran across, and this is the only time I have seen this in any newspaper clippings in the Sousa um, press books, November 22nd, 1907, the headline to the article is Sousa May Quit. And the article, it's a very short one, says that he is tired of travel. He is emotionally, spiritually drained by this experience. And he would prefer to stay at home and be just a composer from November 26 to December 8th, he is unable to perform. And then he's given nurses to monitor him day and night. And it's at that point, the bands are, has become quite concerned about Mr. Sousa's health. He's 53, but shoot, you know, this, you know, 1907, 53 was a good old age. He continues to perform starting in January, but he no longer has to travel. He can stay put for seven months. Concerts, daytime, evening, 
and every night he'd go home to a nice home cooked meal and a nice soft bed that he's familiar with. November of 1910, he's um, touring once again and suddenly comes down with yet another respiratory condition. This time the headlines read, composer recovers from malaria after weeks of illness. But again, he does not lead the band. Herbert Al Clark is now leading the band. In December, he has a world tour that starts off on December 25th and takes him around the world. When they traveled, um, you know, the world tour, Mr. Suzik had a doctor travel with the band continuously. Well, by September 27th, he's now ill again. And he's not just a little ill, he is a lot ill. In fact, the doctors are so concerned that they have Mr. Sousa's daughter, Priscilla, meet him to make sure that he stays well. He is in his 70s at this point. Actually, 75, I think, is how old he was. So, um, you know, as kind of a, a closing to this kind of description, Mr. Souza dies in March of 1932 and eventually dies from what we recognize as a heart attack. Um, and I think um, part of it was just not taking good care of himself. Um, while on the road. That's pretty much the chronicle of Mr. Seuss's life in terms of his health. He, his attitude was always the, the show must go on, and I think he carried that attitude with him throughout his life. Um, was that a healthy thing? No. Um, you know, mental health was never a topic that people talked about you know, in the early 20th century. In fact, if you talk mental health in the early 20th century, um, people would stay away from him. So, um, and of course, Susan needed people to go to his concert. So he wasn't going to tell anybody he was having emotional problems. But I think probably the wear and tear of the extensive tours uh, played a serious role. For our listeners today, I think the, uh, with the, the COVID pandemic, I think the most important thing is to be mindful of your health, um, not only for yourself, but people around you um, who you encounter because you would feel just dreadful making somebody sick because you are taking care of yourself so there is the story of mr souza and his life on the road for this edition of two minute rehearsal techniques we have dr robert taylor the professor of music and director of bands at the university of british columbia Dr. Taylor conducts the Symphonic Wind Ensemble, teaches graduate and undergraduate conducting, and serves as chair of the Woodwind Brass and Percussion Division. Well, the rehearsal technique that I'd like to share is something that I call the 100% rule. Uh, in a musical ensemble, of course, uh, we all understand that there's no carbon neutral option. So either you're contributing to or taking away from the energy in the room at all times. Uh, of course, we know this applies to issues of precision. Uh, if each ensemble member makes even one minor error over the course of a phrase, the outcome is, is very, very different. But I like to apply this concept more broadly to interpretive ideas. 
that is uh, a democratic majority is not enough. 100% of the ensemble members need to be committed to any idea that we have as an ensemble. Uh, take, for example, two easy ways to bring out contrast in uh, the music we're performing. One, uh, dynamics. A technique I like to use with an ensemble is to have the ensemble speak a full range of dynamics at um, uh, a full range of volume. So we'll speak together. Piano. Mezzo piano. Mezzo forte. Forte. Fortissimo. And then I'll whisper to one person and ask just one person to say every time, fortissimo. And of course, uh, when you combine that with everyone else attempting to play the full range of dynamics, the outcome is very different. You only have one dynamic, fortissimo. Uh, another way to apply this is um, through articulation. I like to have the ensemble play four staccato unison notes. We'll play it several times until we feel like uh, we're all matching note length and that we've got some space between the notes and that we're really truly achieving four staccato notes together. Then I'll ask just one person to play a tenuto while everyone else plays those four staccato notes. And immediately what happens is the space between the notes disappears and the outcome changes just by one person playing a different articulation compared to others. I'll follow that by asking, how many people in the room does it take to make a sound? The ensemble always answers one. And how many people in the room does it take to make a silence? Of course, the answer is all. Um, so this is a, a great way, using the 100% rule, is a great way to just show that it's extremely important uh, that we get commitment, 100% commitment, by every ensemble member to reach any common interpretive goal and create compelling music. This month's episode features a discussion about musician mental health, how we can begin to destigmatize it, and address why it is an important and current topic today. Our guests today include American composer Kevin Day, assistant director of bands at Prairie View A&M University and co-host of the SCORE podcast, Dr. Eric Jimenez, professor of music and piano pedagogy at the University of Lincoln, Nebraska, Dr. Brenda Riston, and the manager of student programs for the Department of Arts Education in Chicago Public Schools, Melissa Rukelis. A quick disclaimer, the following story includes content that may be sensitive to some listeners and shares deep personal stories of the guests, including but not limited to violence, racial injustice, COVID-19, anxiety, and depression. Some of the narratives shared could be relatable, personal, and reflect a time of hardship. Listener discretion is advised. We begin by each guest sharing their narrative and why mental health is such an important topic to them. I am from a small town north of Detroit, um, and the the town I grew up in um, had a pretty big band program. That is when I became a drum major of my marching band, and I stepped on the podium to conduct a marching band, and I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do for the, the rest of my life. So I was like, okay, I have to get into music school. Um, and 
I was an oboe player in concert band. Um, and like most oboe players, it was me and um, someone that was older who was awesome. The lucky part for me was that since he was better than I was, I didn't have to play the solos. <laughs> I mean, I just was like, okay, well, he's better. So he's going to do this, whatever. Um, so when I went to college, that was kind of the moment when I realized that my oboe playing was like much more important. So I was realizing this like strong intersection between having to be this like professional oboist and, um, and still do all the ed work and everything. Um, and I struggled. Um, I struggled, I think probably for many reasons, again, being the fact that I was in a studio, I was the only ed major at that point, and all the rest of the oboe players were performance majors. I was already uh, always at the bottom of the barrel. It, it's funny because like, if you like press pause there and like think about mental health as a whole, um, I, I actually um, went and um, saw a nurse practitioner in the psychology department at Northwestern back in, I think it was January. And it was funny because they, they asked, the, one of the questions they asked was, when was the first time that you remember yourself ever feeling anxiety? And I, w like without hesitation, was like, oh, well, college and juries and playing solos and basically being told that I wasn't good enough moving forward into my life, the anxiety kind of manifested over my life in different ways because I feel like when I look back to the reasons why I was feeling this anxiety, it was like this feel like a feeling like I was failing um, and afraid of failure and like just wanting to make sure that I was doing my best all the time. And so then I realized that that uh, was kind of manifesting now in my, you know, current work because I am now overseeing four student programs for the district for Chicago Public Schools. Um, so it's a big, it's a big job. And it was like this dream scenario for me to be a teacher, know the inner workings of these programs, and then get this awesome responsibility to take them on, improve them, modernize them, um, you know, and do all of this crazy work pretty much by myself, you know, I think, I think that's when I started to realize like I was being super hard on myself and like the whole term of mental health, like that was me all the time, whether it was Saturday, Sunday, eight o'clock at night, like I was just living this role and that was it. Um, I am a, so I'm a 24 year old composer um, I'm originally from Arlington, Texas, but I was born in West Virginia. So really I was, I was born in West Virginia, raised in Texas, and now I'm in Georgia. So my life has definitely kind of did this weird kind of triangle thing. And so, I, I mean, music was always a big part of my life, kind of growing up as a kid. Um, so kind of, and I'm, I mean, I'm going through all this very fast, but <laughs> kind of getting to my undergrad, I ended up going to TCU, which is, um, um, which is Texas Christian University. And so I ended up go um, going there to get an undergrad in tuba euphonium performance. So that, that is my undergrad. Um, so during that time, I thought I was going to go one direction with my life. I thought I was going to be 
a performer. I thought I was going to maybe do military gigs or I was going to travel and kind of do that. Um, but as my time in TCU kind of went on, I began to, to have more of this passion for writing and for composing. And so I would be up like until 3 a.m. Um, every night <laughs> and then get up at 6 a.m. to go to theory class and then have a full day because I was writing so much. I just I wanted to get all these ideas out of my head. And so um, I took a lot of, 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 um, of composition lessons with a teacher, um, with a few teachers. And so they were the ones that kind of helped me sort of come into my own and, and, tr and try to figure out how to, how to compose, how to write, how to do all this stuff. And so um, it, things just kind of took off. I had no idea it would turn into what it is now, kind of how everything has, has, has gotten to this point. So um, I'm very, very thankful for, the, like, like for all those opportunities that have been coming. There's a lot more in the future. And so um, I'm just enjoying this really crazy, crazy journey. Um, but kind of how mental health has kind of kind of worked its way into all this. Um, this is actually a very important topic to me because um, I think this this was a big, really this was a huge issue for me when I was an undergrad, and um, I I kind of went through a time that we'll kind of delve into later where like I I had some problems and I was trying to work through a lot of different things while maintaining the career that was kind of happening while trying to be a good person, while being a student, all of this. And so, um, so yes, so this, this is a very important topic. And I mean, I'm glad that we get to talk about it here on this podcast. I am Dr. Brenda Riston, and I'm professor of piano and piano pedagogy at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And of course, my background is as a pianist. My interest in musician wellness started when I personally experienced an injury at the beginning of my master's program. And this led me to examine the culture of piano study, the biomechanics of piano technique um, as means to preventing injury among pianists. So that then became the focus of my master's research and eventually my doctoral dissertation. And it continues as a line of inquiry for me today it is a, a, a big research interest of mine. However, as a university professor, I found myself teaching all levels of students. I oversee the keyboard skills component of our curriculum here. So I, I do work with undergraduates um, all the way through doctoral students as well in our piano pedagogy program. As a university professor, I was seeing, um, I, I was really a daily witness to how the various stressors they were encountering impacted our students um, personally and in their academic progress. And noticing how they responded to them in various ways led me um, kind of to broaden my research interest to not only mental health issues among students, but generally holistic health. So from a, an original interest in looking at factors that influence injury development in pianists to looking at whole music musician populations and thinking about health in a more holistic kind of way. And, you know, certainly the current modes of thinking about health are increasingly acknowledging that you cannot really separate the body from the mind. 
So an interest in physical injuries and injury processes really needs to also take into account emotional and mental health as well. Certainly emotional and mental health is a major issue for our students in a university setting. And it's so, it's, it's so worthy of our attention as, as educators. Yeah, man. So first off, man, thank you for having me. I want to I want to thank you for the opportunity to share it and actually to address this specific topic, which I don't think I've really been able to uh, really just open up myself and my heart to what I've experienced and that of my colleagues. Uh, so I want to thank you for taking on this this task and addressing this issue that's very prevalent in our community, in our profession. Uh, so I'm, I'm Eric Jimenez. I'm the assistant director of bands at Prairie View A&M University, which is, is a HBCU just outside of Houston, Texas. Uh, I'm actually, actually an alum from here. I got my undergraduate degree from Prairie View, and I'm getting the fortunate opportunity to come back and serve my institution that gave me so much. So specifically talking about mental health, I, I have to go back to an anecdotal event that happened for me. Um, I come from a, a very traditional Mexican household. I'm a first-generation Mexican-American. Uh, my parents are from the frontera, the border town of Juarez, Chihuahua, just across the border from El Paso. And one of the cultural tendencies that exists with not only in my extended family, but especially in my immediate family, is that of hard work. And it was reflective in the amount of hours that we would put into our job. Uh, and admittedly, my father would miss events, uh, my, some of my band events, because to him even though he had an advanced degree he has a master's in social work from the united states he had this this mindset that he had to kill himself to provide for us and that was his way of showing love and so i kind of acknowledged that and even though i i had a conversation with him at a young age you know i thought i told myself i'm never going to do that you know but for whatever reason i get out of undergrad and i had a chip on my shoulder because as uh, there's a stigma that that either still or you know exists or did exist about HBCU alumni here in the state of Texas this this false narrative that we were not quality music educators when I got into the scene I can remember hearing these conversations and thinking to myself okay the best way to kill this narrative is to you know show it through my work and so I really worked myself into a very unhealthy position in the aspect of assuming that the amount of hours dictated my success. And so at that point, I started neglecting a lot of important things in my life that I thought could take a back burner. Those were things that were very important to me, but I said, no, I have to prepare for a marching contest. I have to do X, Y, and Z because I have to get those accolades to prove to people that I am willing and an HBCU guy can do this just as well as you guys. Um, to my benefit, yes, I, I did all those things. But then when I got to a point where uh, it was at Davis High School when I got the opportunity to work there. And I remember waking up one day and I, I wasn't getting much sleep. That's the year I chose to go be an administrator and I hated it. And that was probably one of the lowest uh, points of my life, even though the unfortunate part about all that, I did very well at my job. Yet again, I didn't let that sacrifice. And so that day, um, the, we, we had a family event that really shook us to the core. At that point, my wife was, we were newlyweds, and I remember waking up. I said, hey, I, I'm not okay. I need to go talk to somebody. That was probably one of the hardest things for me to just uh, openly say, and especially to the person that I trust the most. Uh, so I definitely didn't tell 
a lot of other people, you know, and this is one of the first times that I kind of say this publicly. And I'm doing this with a lot of vulnerability with the intent of hopefully either pre-service music educators or even people that are going through something similar right now to acknowledge that at what cost. And so the cost was me. It, it became something that uh, I didn't want. I quickly realized I was like, I miss music too much. Uh, music was my calling. I, I thought to myself, let's go back. And I applied for that high high school gig and I got it. And I changed my approach day one. And I've come to the realization that when I got that job at Heights, it was like more efficient work will become more effective work in the long in the long run. So, uh, in a nutshell, that moment has uh, was was so catastrophic for me in my life and my health, and and coming out here, I've intentionally slowed down the pace of my life, for the longevity of my health, my life, and my and my and my family, primarily. So that way, I can shape my career around that. So uh, that that. It's kind of the nutshell of why mental health for me uh, is such an important topic and issue. But admittedly, within the Latino culture and in a lot of communities of color, we don't talk about it. It's like, hey, you know, you're all right. You know, you'll get over it um, because that's something. And I'm just fortunate enough that I have been able to tap onto my father and some of the extended family members to kind of share some of these things uh, that hopefully will begin to start to destigmatize what mental health is within communities of color. Next, we discuss with our guests how these unprecedented times with COVID-19 and times of racial violence and injustice has impacted their mental health and what we all can take away from it. So related to sort of more recent issues with um, um, just just the, the, the political and social unrest, I actually, when the George Floyd incident happened, that was in Texas, and um, when I saw what happened, I I literally had to just get off of the internet and Facebook and, and everything for at least a few weeks, just because I was just, it, it really got to me because to see that happen, to see it unfold, just kind of, I really had to just, to just pull back and say, okay, so this is, this is crazy. This, this happened. And um, it makes me like it, it, that, that whole thing kind of gave me anxiety um, just because I'm like, well, what if this happened to one of my friends? What if this happened to my father? What if this happened to, to like, to someone I know, like it, it, it very well could. So I, shortly after that happened, I was contacted a lot by a lot of people who were wanting a piece about that, <laughs> which was a very, um, it was hard for me to answer those emails because I was still processing the whole thing. And so I finally was able to answer one of them and say, okay, this is, this is what I want to do. And so no one has heard this piece yet, but I have written a piece about this whole thing. But in this one piece, I kind of got all of my feelings about this whole thing in it. So in, in terms of kind of going back to this mental health, how that has related to this, I think it's, it's been a roller coaster for everybody, just because we've never really been in this situation before with COVID-19. Um, the social unrest is just, it, it's, it's almost like there were things swept under the rug, and there was one point where just the rug got kind of pulled out. But it, 
for a lot of us, we always knew this was there. We, we always knew racism was there. We knew that there were there were issues. So as soon as the issue started happening and surfacing, um, we made an entire episode on it's called White Fragility on the SCORE podcast, kind of talking about this. That allowed me to share my frustrations. About the two to three weeks prior to that, it started pissing me off. And I am not the... I'm not a Twitter fingers kind of guy. I don't go back and forth and banter on and on Facebook comments and that kind of thing, especially when people have willful, willful ignorance. And, you know, that's just I would rather find other ways in my just my then this is mainly selfish on my part for my own sanity uh, and my energy that I when I get frustrated in that aspect, knowing that they're not, you know, going to be willing to change. Uh, I get to a very unhealthy point. This is where my blood pressure goes up and that kind of thing. So I, I always think about how can I, what platform, what medium. And then I was like, man, let's use our podcast. So that that event made me get frustrated because uh, in in all these educational circles, what ended up happening, I'm talking about like almost immediately when we were told that the country is shut down, all these Facebook groups popped up of e-learning and virtual learning and how to navigate this and so many comments and threads and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what I'm talking about, I, I got added to like five different ones that were on the same topic and then higher ed and COVID learning. And it was just, it, which was great. It just goes to show like, oh, cool, we, when, when there's a need, we come together. And then George Floyd, which is, you know, born and raised in Houston, third ward. Uh, and I get to see this and then, you know, People go to these same forums and say, hey, how do I deal with this trauma that's going to be in my classroom? How do I help my students? How do I address this with my students of color? And I mean, they were silenced. They were marginalized. This is not a political group. This is uh, if you want to talk about those kind of things, create your own group. Uh, it just I was like, my goodness. And so instead of going on there, like I said, I don't go on there and. And, and and use my my, my keyboard. I, I called Justin, my co-host, and I was like, "Look, bro, hey, this Sunday we talking about this. Um, I need to get some things off my chest because uh, I didn't know how to how to go about saying it. Because Justin and I are used to like they're not going to talk about it. You know, we're going to figure it out on our own. You know, we're we're in majority white spaces, and this is not important to them. So like, hey, we we've made it before. Let's keep going. And we've always have kind of this shield uh, of knowing how to navigate into these spaces. But then I. It made me think. I was like, "No, this is real. Our kids are gonna be with trauma." Like, uh, so what hap has happened to me, uh, and I will admit this: that I need to be um, more tolerant of people that are not, you know, on the political same side as me. So during this time, I have felt this sense of uh, renewed ownership in serving. It's it's knowing that because of who I am and the places that I've been able to reach, I am completely present that I have the ability to open those doors for my students that might still be feeling those barriers, that might still be experiencing those systemic structures that are working against them. I'm not just going to sit there with the privilege that I now have. I'm going to extend that to anybody and everybody who needs it, wants it, or deserves it. And so these are things that I am present to that has only strengthen my calling uh, during this time to know that it's like, okay. I mean, honestly, COVID-19 Black Lives Matter are like two different things in, in, in regards to like how 
I'm functioning. <laughs> COVID-19 specifically was like the turning point for me to be able to realize um, that I needed that, that at the point, that point in time, I was living alone um, in a studio apartment. And uh, when, when COVID hit, I realized I had to be with my family. And I, you know, I just didn't, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what the timeline was going to look like. But when I started to, to hear that, you know, it could be a long time. And, and, and the funny part was, is that like, right. Um, we were like right in the launch of our advanced arts program and we were gaining momentum when it hit. So I was like in the habit of working late and going to the gym and then having a protein shake and then going to bed. So I talked to my sister and I was like, I'm coming to Michigan. So I ended up going back home um, and stayed with my sister and her husband. And at that point in time, um, it was my, my uh, niece was six months old. So I like, I felt like COVID-19 was like this, um, like smack in the face of like, A, I need to slow down. And B, I really, really, really stopped and looked at who were the important people in my life. And, you know, everybody, not everybody, but, you know, men mental health in, in the COVID-19 times, you know, it, it's, it's like everyone. I think having my sister and having my family and being there was was just an awesome thing. And, and that's when it's like that moment then you're like, I need help. And that, and that was easier for me to say that than I think normal. Um, so yeah, I, I just tried to, to be positive and, and sometimes that's really difficult. Um, but yeah, I feel like if, if you were to ask a staff member, you know, like what would they say about me? You know, that I, I would hope that they would say something like that, 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 that would be the case, you know? So, yeah. From here, we discuss certain stressors musicians encounter on a daily basis. Anxiety disorders and depression disorders are actually quite common. Um, in fact, research generally, research studies, various studies generally agree that the lifetime prevalence rate, that means the likelihood or the, the number of people who experience one of these disorders over the course of their lifetime is probably between 20 and 30 percent. Um, and those are the people who seek help. We do know as well that a huge proportion of people who are experiencing these disorders do not seek help, upwards of 50 percent. In fact, the age range of 18 to 25, um, and that is obviously going to describe most of our students, is one of the most common times of life to experience anxiety or depression. This is because of the challenges, the developmental challenges that we face at that point in life. You know, for music students at the beginning of that age range is when they're auditioning uh, uh, for music programs and transitioning to full-time music study. And at the end of that window, we're competitively auditioning for jobs, usually. And all throughout that window, <laughs> you know, that's when we transition to adulthood. So 
we're living on our own and we're learning how to run households and balance pressures from, from work and school and manage finances. So we're experiencing those pressures of adulthood for the first time. And I, I think for all of those reasons, feeling anxiety and depression um, for most university students, is that it's actually pretty common. Um, not to say that it's okay or acceptable, but that that is, I think, you know, those are some of the reasons that we see such high anxiety and depression rates in people aged 18 to 25. So one of the biggest stressors, I think, for both music teachers and students alike is simply managing our time and juggling a large number and variety of time commitments. So it's, I would say the big thing for me coming into undergrad was I was very much a, um, a perfectionist, like at, to almost an extreme. Um, <laughs> because I was coming in like as a tuba euphonium player and I was being pulled into many ensembles. I was playing, I think my, my freshman year, I was playing in like six different ensembles. And so I was practicing constantly and I was, I was trying to be the best and all this other stuff that was kind of going on. And so it all just got really overwhelming. And this was even before I really got into the composing part, but just, just with the playing part. And so it, it really, as I mean, I, I had had a few talks with some people from TCU about this idea of like us being perfect, like, and it's, and it's kind of stressed a lot, I think, with directors sometimes where they're like, we have to get this right, you have to get this right, you have to nail this part, you have to get that audition, you have to, and so I think, I think that, that always stressed me out because I felt like I always had to kind of be at that level constantly, and so even with auditions, I later learned that like I had to kind of take my head out of the whole process if I was going to play well. Because if I began to listen to other people and say like, oh, he's playing it like this. What if I did that? Or if I get caught up in what other people are doing, then that would drastically hurt like what I was trying to do. So anytime I go into an audition, I always kind of keep a cool head and I just sort of say okay whatever happens is what happens if I miss a note okay if I crack a note it's not the end of the world so I think I think perfectionism was a big part of I guess my first couple of years where I was trying to live up to a certain expectation but I think really um that that kind of led to me like just just being really burnt out really overwhelmed and um when it came to just the mental health uh, part of it, I think there was a couple of instances in undergrad where I had like something like really bad happen and it just kind of sent me into a not so great place. And so, I mean, a big thing that happened was like, I ended up losing uh, my childhood best friend. Um, I lost him um, the second semester of my freshman year. And so that 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 hurt in a in a huge way, because like he he was like shot and killed. Um, was ended up getting caught in the crossfire of someone who was trying to go for someone else. And so I lost a friend that I sort of had like this strong musical connection with. Uh, we both, you know, we, we shared a dream 
that you know he wanted to be a film director and I wanted to be a film composer and we would kind of joke about that and so losing him really kind of sent me into a not so great place and so that's I think that's when I really questioned why I was doing what I was doing um it made me question why I was practicing so much <laughs> it, it made me question why I was trying to be perfect when I knew that that was really something that um, could never happen and so it I think that situation is really what kind of began me beginning this process of looking inward to to writing more, which is why I was up constantly and, and doing that because I needed an outlet. I had a lot of pain. I had a lot of grief. I had a lot of things kind of going on in that time. And so it's it's there was a period, I think, where I was sort of depressed for like two years straight, like two or three years where it, it just like no matter what good happened, I always just, it, it, it was just a rough time. Like I, I didn't take, like, like take compliments well, or I wouldn't like feel happy about my accomplishments because I was processing a lot of this pain and a lot of this grief. And I think sometimes we have this idea of like, like, okay, things will change overnight. Or something will happen overnight. This took, like I said, two or three years to really get out of that kind of headspace um and it's it's almost like despite all of that i didn't i didn't go talk to anyone about it because i didn't really know what to do i just kind of just lived with it every day i i i got up i i went to school and i went to bed and all of that mess was still up there and so it's i got used to to to, to living with it which is, is, is not, I think, very healthy. We are going to conclude this discussion with our guests sharing resources and strategies as coping mechanisms. So what it's going to take for an individual to find out is what works for them. For me, it is waking up earlier than my family. And that's just me. So I get a lot of my kind of even work and podcast stuff done before my kids wake up. So that way, when they wake up, my energy is on them. So I would say if you're unstructured with your time, I would say use a calendar. Use some type of system that you would be consistent. Then on top of that, I do schedule um, Airbnb trips and I disconnect. Right now, I have a lot more time in my schedule than I've had in the past 11 years. And my natural instinct was to fill it with work. And so my, my dad has been my life coach and he goes, okay, uh, I'm gonna need you to schedule time for yourself. And I was like, no, no, I will. And he's like, no, I need you to be intentional. Make one of those days for you, make half of those days for you. And when I say for you, do something that you love doing. And I was like, yes, sir. You know, and just, and it was, and it was, the truth and my wife echoed it honestly like i went down to houston yesterday i uh, go visit my parents and i could just feel the difference and i was like who i miss my city but wow how different my like my shoulders feel the stress levels my my level of peace of knowing that i'm being intentional of fulfilling myself which in return has completely helped my mental health so the pandemic has helped in prioritizing that is is focusing on what is really important and that's family and your close ones and your loved ones. I know one thing that I've um, 
if anybody is of uh, Latino descent, sometimes the cultural ties are huge. And when, when a mental health professional is selected, um, where, you know, the culturally responsive practices is not just an education. It transfers into medicine. It transfers into mental health. So a website and an Instagram that I've been promoting is Latinx Therapy. Um, and they actually link you with individuals within your own kind of region, cultural tendencies that exist within the Latino community sometimes. And not only have they experienced them, but they can talk about them with a sense of understanding and nuance that would not offend the individual, that would be more receptive to sharing a lot more, that in return, it would be much more comfortable. So like you said, it's very important with that relationship. So knowing that individual, one of my friends told me one time saying, man, the lady I have is really nice. You know, I'm going to therapy and, but I catch myself code switching to prove to her that I'm educated and, and I don't like it because that's the space where I want to let the blinds up and just open up. And I'd rather speak Spanglish and kind of be more comfortable. And so I found a bilingual person that's willing to speak Spanglish with me and they can understand when I inter intersect from both languages. And, and I was, I'd never thought about that. And I would be much more comfortable with somebody if I said a Spanish word in there, which I tend to do sometimes, is is they wouldn't say like, well, I, I don't understand that. Can you repeat that? And, you know, and it's now I'm putting my hat back on. It's like, okay, I got a code switch. So what I was trying to say is, you know, and it's like, come on, you know. And so I, I think that's also very important to what you just said, the relationship, but then knowing that that person understands where you're coming from on a cultural aspect, on a socioeconomic aspect, and so many things that are factors that influence, like we talked about, these mental health issues. While like relating back to the fact that, you know, some of this and and this year especially has been like uh, incredibly difficult for me just because I went through a pretty traumatic personal situation. Really honestly, like, you know, overcoming and realizing that my mental health is a value of mine. That was a, like an exercise that I did with my therapist was like, what are my core values as a human? And, um, you know, mental health was a core value. And I think the other thing is like the stigma of admitting that there is something that, that we are not this optimal, you know, perfect human and to, to find and acknowledge what you might struggle with is like the first step of any, like making the balance work in your life. And I, and really honestly, like I'm a huge, huge um, fan of therapy. I, you know, still do and do regularly. I think the stigma behind therapy is like, there's something wrong with you. And I really believe like in order to check yourself as a, as a human being that like therapy and having a therapist that you know and trust that you know knows you as a person and you're totally honest about who you are with this therapist like that that that's like the first step and the, the other thing in, in regards to strategy i mean i wrote my master's thesis on uh, director induced performance anxiety and so i mean when when we talk about strategies and we talk about tips thinking across as a musician, I mean, like the first thing that I tried as a performer was basically taking medicine when I, before I performed, it just didn't work for me. And actually now, um, 
and I and I always was like then against it from that point forward. I was like, I don't want to to be on any type of medicine or anything like that. And I think then the step two was then going to the actual doctor and talking to someone about what my anxiety levels are and when I'm feeling anxiety and just being like super cognizant of like what I feel, when I feel it. And um, and that's when I ended up getting on a, on a, a long-term um, depression, anxiety medicine. And like, I'm telling you, <laughs> I mean, not that I'm like a, uh, you know, a, a pharmaceutical sales rep, but, but I'm telling you, man, my life, like it was, it was radically different, um, to, to when I started taking medicine and, and made that change. Well, you are your own line of recourse in developing coping strategies that work for you individually. The National Association of Schools of Music, which is your institution is a member and my institution is a member, has adopted a standard that their member institutions have to provide wellness information to their students. So many of these institutions are regularly providing fact sheets and information about health and wellness issues to their students. These may be available on your university's website. The National Institute of Mental Health has a variety of, actually a very wide variety of information, brochures and fact sheets available on their website. Um, I also wanna say that if stress or anxiety is go going beyond the everyday ups and downs or impacting your daily function, or even if you might just like to get some ideas and guidance for which coping strategies might work for you, I'd encourage you to check out what campus resources are available. Virtually all universities and colleges offer mental health care resources to their students, um, often available right on the campus. These services are usually um, offered at low cost or maybe even offered for free to students. I think the big take home here though, is that you have to seek out the resources that you need to get better. Um, if you're in a crisis and you need help right away, um, many university city and state entities have crisis helplines or hotlines available for this purpose. I also wanna mention that if you are truly overwhelmed, um, if you're coming from that place, that can feel overwhelmingly difficult to take the initiative yourself and get the help you need. And so for this reason, sharing your struggles with a trusted family member, friend, or even your music teacher or professor and asking them to help you get the, the help you need or to point you to resources uh, can be a great first step. I, I think it's important to remember that most of us struggle with depression and anxiety at some point in our lives. I also wanna say life will not always feel this hard and you can experience peace and joy again. Mental health care challenges are real and they deserve the same attention as any other illness. What ended up helping me was being able to start talking to people about kind of what was going on and to, to go see someone about it and to, to not be afraid to do that. I'm very grateful that I'm beginning to see more of my composer colleagues and, and my director colleagues just, just kind of talk about this. Other than composing kind of as an outlet, I have to do things to kind of take a break, which is nice. So whether that's through like through meditation, that's, that's, been, very, uh, that's been very helpful to me. Going out and, and, and taking a walk or taking a drive, I like to take drives. The other 
thing too has just been community. I think with me, my my fraternity brothers in case I and also in find me off I have been very helpful. Um, my my case I brothers were there for me tremendously whenever I lost my friend years ago. They were very intentional about like trying to hang out, trying to go do things, trying to you know make sure I don't feel sad. And so I'm and I'm forever grateful to them. And I mean the same thing with my Symphonia brothers who helped me just just kind of get through a rough time as I was getting through the rest of my degree at TCU and, and all of that. If it's intentional community, then you'll help each other. There was a quote by a, uh, by a mentor of mine named Eddie Earhart, and um, he's a recent graduate of TCU, got his DMA in conducting, and now he's teaching at Tyler Junior College. He's a fantastic director and a, and a it really, I attribute him as like as like one of the people who saved my life. But he he said a quote that was, "You have to find the beauty within the world." So that was a quote that I internalized years ago when he told me that, and I just repeat that to myself. Like now, even with what's what's happening now with COVID, even with just the unrest and and everything that is happening right now, I have to look outside and say you know what, there's still beauty, there's still music to be made, there are still ways we can help change lives, and we, we can use this gift of music to be able to share with other people. Thank you for listening to this episode of One More Time, a Windbad podcast. If you are dealing with anything mental health related, we encourage you to use the resources provided below and to go seek medical professional care. You are never alone in this, and let's continue these conversations to destigmatize mental health. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to share it on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and help more people listen to and enjoy the show. If you want to stay current with Illinois Bands Between Episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram, or find us on Twitter at Illinois Bands. You can always check out our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer of this episode is Dr. Anthony Bessina. This episode and mixing of the episode was done by Jake Burroughs. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty. Dr. Steven Peterson, Director of Bands. Dr. Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands. Dr. Elizabeth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is a part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Dr. Brenda Riston, Dr. Eric Jimenez, Melissa Rutkelis, Kevin Day, Dr. Robert Taylor, and Scott Schwartz. We hope you will join us for our next episode of One More Time, Open Bed Podcast.